From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terranforma. Hello and welcome back. I'm Tiana Barber-Cross. And I'm Kezia Diaz. And we'll be your hosts for the next half hour of environmental news from across Canada and around the world. This week, we have an interview with Nathan Grant, a graduate student from the University of Alberta and Terra Informer, Jeremy Maho. We'll hear about Mr. Grant's research on marine life off the coast of British Columbia near Haida Gwaii. That's coming up on Terra Informa. But first, here are this week's headlines. Alberta's NDP government has announced it will be shelving its cap on oil sand emissions until after this spring's provincial election. The emissions cap is a key cornerstone to the Alberta Climate Leadership Plan and has been a long-promised measure to rein in emissions off the industry. The decision comes as political opposition mounts against the NDP's climate policy. However, three energy companies, Suncor, Canadian Natural Resources and Synovus showed support for the emissions cap in emails on Tuesday. Synovus spokesman Brett Harris confirmed the company's support of the plan as demonstrating a commitment to emission reductions on Tuesday. Quote, We continue to support the goals of Alberta's Climate Leadership Plan, which was designed to position Canada as the world leader in responsible oil productions while also helping ensure industry competitiveness. End quote. And now it's time to check out this week's story. Terra informer Jeremy Maho recently spoke with Nathan Grant, a graduate student at the University of Alberta. In their interview, we'll hear about the Hecate Strait Marine Protected Area off the coast of northern British Columbia, as well as Nathan's research on a fascinating and uniquely Canadian animal, glass sponges. They also discuss the daily life of a marine field scientist from the amazing technology that allows us to peer into the deepest depths to the fancy food on Coast Guard ships. So let's get into it. Here we go. We are here talking about marine protected areas or MPAs. Um, so Nathan, what is a marine protected area? Uh, a marine protected area is basically an area somewhere in the environment, it can be at sea or at land, that's basically set aside solely to protect the environment that is there. Usually they cancel out, you're not allowed to do any sort of hunting or fishing there, basically whatever it takes to keep that environment pristine. There's a couple different levels of MPAs that have different levels of protection. Sometimes they will allow things like indigenous fishing to occur in the MPA, but no commercial activities to occur. But it, it depends on the legislation that goes along with the MPA uh, as to what's allowed. The highest level is that nothing is allowed whatsoever to occur. It's just the environment is allowed to continue to grow without the effects of humans destroying it or affecting it in any sort of way. 
So how are they created? What's the process to get these all figured out? I'm, I'm not a law student. I don't go into that uh, too much. But for example, like the, what I do know about how the glass sponge reef MPA is, the one that I worked on for my thesis, is basically we discovered this ecosystem. Uh, we did, there was a bunch of research going on and there's kind of this upwelling of community and researchers saying we need to protect this thing and that made the government take notice. DFO or Fisheries and Oceans Canada came in and they said okay we're gonna go through this research and see if it's worth it. Worth it's not really the right term for it but more or less what it is and they say yes we want to protect this and then it it goes through the minister um, of Fisheries and Oceans Canada and they basically get all the legislation written out in like February of 2017. It was like official saying there's a marine protected area here. All the laws go in place now. But the amount of research that goes up to designating it can take many, many years. So this one we discovered in the 80s, which was what, 40 years ago, something like that. That one from 40 years of discovering the ecosystem to 2017, making it an actual MPA, that is what most people consider fast-tracked. <laughs> so it, it can take a lot of time to get all the research necessary to say what affects the ecosystem, what do you have to protect against. A lot of times you have to do like an environmental impact assessment, which takes a long time talking to all the different stakeholders. For in this case, it was fishermen, indigenous people, First Nations people. The government themselves had a stakehold in it. Uh, oil and gas industry has a stakeholder in it. So it, it takes a long time to go through all of them, plus compile all the research and saying what is necessary to protect and what is not. So you were involved in research for this most recently created MPA, which was the Hecate Strait one, right? Yes. Um, what was your research? What was it like being involved with a project like that? I like started my master's about what, six months before the MPA was actually established. Um, so my, my research goes more into refining the MPA and, and like updating it uh, once it was actually formed. What I did specifically was um, the ecosystem that's being protected is made up of animals called glass sponges. And sponges are basically just filter feeding animals. A lot of people don't actually realize they're animals, but they are. Um, and they just sit there and they just filter water through their bodies and they're actually pumping the water through the bodies themselves and they feed just 24 7 non-stop just filtering this water uh, and they're really important for maintaining a connection between what's in the water column the pelagic zone and what's on the seafloor or the benthic zone and this filtering action that's basically the key to this whole environment these glass sponge reefs that we're trying to be protected that filtering action needs to happen 24 7 to keep the animals alive. What was discovered in in 2008, there was a big thing that was basically the catalyst for my project was to show that these glass, specifically the glass sponges at the reefs are able to basically hold their breath. They do what's called an arrest. So if you throw mud on them or there's something in the water column that they don't want to filter through, they'll basically just stop all their pumping. And no other sponge really does this. Some sponges can reduce their pumping a little bit by contracting parts of their tissues and stuff. But the way this sponge, the way these sponges do it is they are able to send electrical signals through their bodies 
despite not having any nerves or anything, these are some of the most simple, simple organisms on the planet. We don't like to use the word simple, but it's what is conventionally used. They send these electrical signals and it stops all this pumping action and it's what we call an arrest. And my whole project was on this arrest, um, this arrest response, arrest behavior, whatever you want to call it. And so my job was, instead of going in the lab and saying, okay, we did it in the lab, we threw sediment on a sponge. And basically what happens is they threw sediment on a sponge in a jar and said, look, it arrests. And they used that research to inform the marine protected area back in 2008 saying, look, they arrest, we have to have some sort of boundary around the reefs so that if you're fishing or dropping anchor or something and you stir up sediment, that sediment's not gonna affect the sponges. A lot of the fishermen um, basically said, that's great, we agree with you that your science is sound, but this is our livelihood and what you did was in a glass jar. Glass jar does not equate to uh, the field. And so I came in as a field biologist, that's my background, worked with this field data that had already been collected. In 2017, I got to go out and collect my own field data uh, at the bottom of the ocean. And basically, you disturb sediment around some of these sponges. We have instruments set up beside the sponge to record whether they're arresting or not. And I showed that, I basically showed to the fishermen that yes, this is happening in the field. And these sponges are actually probably more sensitive than what we saw in the laboratory study. So I wasn't necessarily informing the MPA in its development, but I was uh, informing it after the fact. So it can be refined and said, look, your estimates might actually be overestimates. They might be more sensitive. That's, that was the basic overall message of my thesis. So when you were out there working in the field, what did a typical day look like? Did you work with a lot of the communities or were you mostly focused kind of on the science? Oh, okay. So a, a day for me out there uh, is rather interesting. So when I say field data, um, we're going out on a Coast Guard ship. Uh, we're out for two to three weeks um, out actually in Hecate Strait, which is in the Pacific Ocean between uh, Haida Gwaii and mainland BC. And we're, we're using this remotely operated vehicle called Roadpost, which is this fantastic um, machine, freaking space age robot. Um, and it goes down to the bottom of the ocean, completely remote controlled. It's the size of a minivan and it's got these articulating arms and we're able to actually put instruments in front of our um, sponges that way and set it uh, all up the way we want to, to run experiments. So when I say I'm in the field, I'm on a ship uh, running 12 hour, we, we ran science 24 hours a day on the ship in 12 hour shifts. So I was on the like 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. shift. I think that's what I was on. Um, we get up and we go over to the Ropos pilots and say, okay, this is what we want to do today. We'd run it all the way through. And you're basically, if you're not watching the machine down at the bottom of the ocean and instructing the pilots and how you want the science to be done, the uh, ROV is up on the ship and you're running through samples. Uh, you're going over the data you just collected to see if there's any way to improve it. And it's just constantly go, go, go until it's mealtime. And then everybody like stops for half an hour and get to finally eat some food. And food on Coast Guard ships is some of the best food in Canada, I swear. And it's, it's just that. It's just go, go, go for two to three weeks on the ship, swaying back and forth, trying to get as much science done as possible. 
So what are some of the biggest threats to this marine protected area? Right, well, the, the biggest threat that my whole project was concerned with is trawling, which is basically bottom contact fishing where they'll send down a huge net that's got these big metal doors on it and a big metal beam across it to keep the net at the bottom of the ocean to collect things like halibut and flounder, uh, sole, stuff like that, anything that lives close to the bottom, and they just drag this net across the bottom. You'll see in tons of documentaries, like the effects of this, it can totally wipe out an ecosystem because it's, it's basically just dredging the bottom uh, all the way across, destroying anything in its path. And that's what the MPA is there to stop. Basically say, you can't just run a net across all these sponges. But you're still, all the fishermen are still trying to get the fish that's there. Uh, so what they do... <laughs> Not that they're doing this on purpose. The fishermen are actually very, very nice. I should, I should just preface all this. They worked with us fantastically in this whole MPA process. Um, but what the idea is that you, you still want to catch as many fish as possible, so you're going to go right up to the limit of where you're allowed to fish and drag that net. And when you're dragging that net, it's going to, even though you're not destroying any sponges, it's going to produce a lot of sediment into the water column because these big metal doors stir up all the sediment. And even though you have this protected area, you, all the sediment cloud, sediment clouds in the water don't care about what the law says. They're just going wherever the current is. And if that current happens to be going right over the sponges, um, then they start to arrest. And when they're arrested, they can't feed, which could potentially be very bad for their health in the long run, depending on how long they're arrested for. So that's the big thing I'm worried about is when you're dragging these nets across the bottom, producing these clouds of sediment, how is that going to affect the sponges? And how is uh, a buffer zone, if you say, okay, there may not be any sponges here, but we're going to leave this area undisturbed, so there's some sort of buffer zone for that sediment to settle out before it reaches the sponges. How, do, how well does that actually protect the sponges themselves? That's the, the biggest threat. There's, there's other threats, like just like anything, climate change uh, can affect them. There's a lot of, not a lot of, but there is some people looking into uh, resource exploration out there for things like natural gas. Um, that was a concern when the MPA was first being formed. And the MPA is actually like a three-dimensional structure. It actually goes down into the sediment and the bottom of the ocean below the sponges and said, you can't do anything for, I, th I believe it's about 20 meters below where the sponges even are uh, to help prevent that resource ex uh, exploitation if there was anything there. So. Those are, those are the main ones, fishing and resource exploration or exploitation. Yeah. So why was it so important to protect these sponges um, that the government went through all that trouble to create a protected area? Uh, well, there, there's a couple different reasons for that. My, my personal favorite, and this is not a great leg to stand on, um, I've gotten in uh, some arguments with people about this. My personal reason is that these things don't exist anywhere else. They are a uniquely Canadian thing. And to me, that's so cool that Canada has this amazing ecosystem that nobody knew existed. We found it. It only exists in Canada. Why would you not want to protect that? Uh, so to me, that's one of the really cool things. Not everybody stands behind that because you can't just say, it's important because it's important. <laughs> um, one, one of the big things is... Uh, like any reef, it supports a lot of diversity in animals there, which it, the number of commercial species that we see when we go down there to do field research, when we send the ROV down, 
one of our whole research sets was totally toppled over by this giant halibut, which is a fantastic commercially important species, but they make their home there. So um, you want to protect them so that they have somewhere to grow so that you can keep fishing them. Um, that's, that's one thing. Because there's these huge swaths of them, hundreds of kilometers of sponges down at the bottom of the ocean there, people don't realize how much they're actually affecting the water column there. Like a sponge can, um, in a single day, can turn over 900 times its uh, body weight in water. Like these things are constantly filtering and not everyone actually understands how much that affects the water on the west coast of Canada. Um, that's going to have huge implications. So if you took all of that away, you have no idea what's going to happen to the West Coast. It might not change anything. It could drastically change everything. So those those are some of the things. Like I said, my favorite thing is it's it's so uniquely Canadian. It's, it's so fantastic. That's really pretty cool, I think. Um, why are they found only here, like only in the Canadian waters? Where do they come from? Well, if you can answer that, uh, my supervisor will give you a PhD all your own. Uh, that's like the biggest question right now. There's a couple of theories going out as to why they're only in Canada, but the short answer is we have no idea. There seems to be something special about Hecate Strait and the BC coast down into the Strait of Georgia that's unique to these sponges. They need constant flow. They need high levels of silica because when I call them glass sponges, they're actually made more or less of glass. They're um, this silica-like glass that builds up their uh, skeletons that are made up of all these tiny little fragments. So it's not like a skeleton like you and I have. It's basically all these little shards of silica fused together to form these skeletons that make them stand up in the water column. And the BC coast just happens to have a high level of silica there. It also has a fairly consistent temperature around six to nine degrees C at the bottom of the ocean, which is super important to them. The, the way the ocean circulates there uh, and the amount of nutrients that fall from the surface waters, that seems to be uh, one of the important things. And even though I'm trying to protect them from sediment, the reefs actually need sediment in order to thrive and grow because even though sediment can stop them from filtering, they need a very small amount to actually cement one sponge onto the next. They actually use that accumulation of sediment to build up the reef as a whole. So it's all these factors just happen to be in the perfect condition to make these reefs occur here. We've never seen it happen anywhere else because it doesn't seem like these conditions just happen to work anywhere else. But in all reality, we really don't know. These are all just guesses as to what seems to be the case. Yeah, okay. So you were researching after the fact of the creation of the marine protected area, would you say that it's been effective so far in protecting the sponges? Definitely, yes. Um, even even before, and uh, when the MPA was put into place in 2017, um, there was some mandatory fishing closures around it to say, you can't fish here, we're trying to do research to determine whether we can protect this area. And even before that, and this is why I say the fishermen helped us out a lot, uh, there was voluntary fisher closures. The government and the fishermen said, okay, we're not going to do here, so you guys can do your research. And that, that happened back in the late 90s, uh, 2000s. But before that, uh, when the reefs were first being discovered in the 80s, it was this huge thing. We saw, uh, not we, I was definitely not there in the 80s. Geological Survey of Canada was surveying out there 
uh, looking for resources, and they saw these anomalies at the bottom of the ocean and found out they were sponge reefs after um, some more discoveries. And we're like, okay, these are fantastic. But when they were finding all these sponge reefs, even though we didn't know they existed, we saw huge swaths of them were already destroyed by these trawling, the thing that I was most concerned about. You go down there and you'll, you'll see sponges and you'll just see this straight line of just no sponges because somebody dragged a net there and destroyed them all. Um, and you, you can see that in the sonar records uh, once they actually were able to get funding for a submersible and go down there and look at it themselves, they were seeing uh, the similar thing. So before we started protecting them, they were totally being destroyed. But as soon as those voluntary fishing closures went in, um, at the very least, they weren't actively being destroyed by fishing pressure. They might still be affected by the sediment. That's what my work was going on. But up until that point, until my research, they were being protected somewhat and it was definitely seeming to be effective because obviously we weren't totally destroying them anymore. <laughs> so Hecate Strait is obviously not the first marine protected area uh, in Canada and hopefully not the last. Do you have any thoughts on what would be another kind of important ecosystem to protect? Uh, yeah, it, it definitely wasn't the first, nor will it be the last. At the time, it was, it was a huge thing for our research because it was, it was the biggest marine protected area Canada had ever had at that point. I haven't uh, followed the news closely enough. There's one that's either being considered or it was just confirmed um, up in uh, Nunavut around, I think it's Lancaster Sound, that somebody else in my lab actually works with. He was looking at Arctic sponges and basically just doing a survey of uh, the Arctic Ocean in Canada to see what sponges we have there because nobody had any idea. And that one area up there was being considered, but there didn't seem to be enough kind of like diversity or important species to protect. But if, if I got to choose, I would definitely say somewhere in the Arctic, um, just because those ecosystems have, have yet to be exploited. Like, yes, it's important to protect the ones that are being exploited. Like there's an MPA off uh, Newfoundland uh, to protect uh, certain fish habitats. There's quite, quite a few around Nova Scotia, where I used to live, protecting whale habitats and fish habitats and deep sea corals and stuff. But the Arctic, to me, is really important to kind of get a head start on protecting those ones because we, we know what happens when we try and protect them after the fact. We're trying to rehabilitate them. But if we can protect them before too much damage is actually done to them, to me, that seems like a better strategy. I was just curious about what you just said. You were saying that they were considering this marine protected area, but weren't sure if there were enough important species. How do you define what is an important species? Yeah, that's... That's me not choosing my words quite carefully enough. Most, most of the time, an MPA is chosen to protect a very specific habitat that's usually like a nursery ground for species or somewhere where they, they spawn, something like that, some important part of their life cycle that needs to be protected there. Usually, not always, but in my experience of learning about them in school, it generally seems that an MPA is usually chosen to protect some sort of commercially important species. So you want to protect cod spawning grounds or something like that, because cod fishery is really important. You want to protect scallop habitat or sponges because they 
Kermot Sol and Halibut and stuff like that. So in the Arctic where we haven't, we've exploited, but we haven't exploited a lot. It's hard to say what's the most important, air quotes on that, in uh, species to protect up there because uh, it hasn't overly been exploited the way some of the other ones have. This is kind of, I guess, diverging a little bit from the realm of hard science here, but we've had terrestrial protected areas for a long time since, you know, since Banff in 1885. So why do you think it took so much longer for us to start thinking about the ocean? Uh, well, that one, it, it's hard to say, but the, the biggest thing is it's the kind of the same reason we used to throw trash in the ocean. And it's the same reason, one of the reasons that the cod stock kind of fell off in Newfoundland is the ocean is big. In, in our heads back in the day, I would assume it's this thing is so big. Why would we ever run out of resources here? Why would anything we do affect this big, massive place? And it's because we're not in the ocean, it's, it's hard to see the effects. Like in Banff, you can see the effects of what you're doing almost in real time. Um, one of the examples that I learned from watching a seminar here is um, Elk Island National Park. You could see the effect of what we were doing to the bison and we needed that protected area to, uh, to protect some of these herds and stuff like that. And uh, like the guy who started Elk Island National Park and protecting the bison there, like he could see what was happening in real time. It's really hard to do that with the ocean because we're just not there. We're generally only there when we need to exploit its resources. So it's especially something like the glass sponges, they're 200 meters below the surface. We need an ROV to go see them that has, you know, seven cameras and 13 lights on it to see because it's pitch black down there. Otherwise, you'd never even know that you needed to protect it. In closing, if you have anything you think is important for people to know about glass sponges, you know, it's not an animal we really think about very often, or protecting the ocean, if you have any last thoughts on that. Protecting the ocean, it's the same as protecting anything else. Like, you should always keep it in the back of your head when you're you know, buying products, if you're looking at buying seafood, see where it comes from, stuff like that. Those are, those are the obvious things to say. But, but for me, I'm gonna reiterate something I had said before is, these glass sponges are so uniquely Canadian and really predominantly they're West Coast Canadian ecosystem. And just to protect something that's so uniquely Canadian, to me is is very important. I'm not overly patriotic, but it just, it seems so fascinating to me to do that. So go out and do research. There's tons of research on the CPAWS website, Canadian Parks and Wilderness. Um, DFO has tons of research out there. And just go and learn about them because most of the time when I tell people I study sponges, their eyes glaze over. They're like, oh, I don't care about my kitchen sponge, <laughs> like whatever. But Sponges are some of the earliest animals on the planet. They're so unique to everything else we see on a daily basis that they're actually really cool to learn about just because they are so different. They don't have eyes. They don't have like a circulatory system. They don't have a respiratory system or a nervous system. None of the stuff we have, but they're so important to the ecosystem out there that it just makes them fascinating to study despite how different and how quote-unquote simple they appear. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Nathan.
You've been listening to Jeremy Maho speaking with Nathan Grant about his research on glass sponges in the Hecate Strait Marine Protected Area. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. If you want to hear more stories like the one we played today, visit our website at terrainforma.ca where you can listen, share, and subscribe on iTunes. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM located in Edmonton, Alberta and part of Treaty 6, the historic territory of Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, Dene and many other First Nations who continue living and gathering here. If you have questions or comments, send us an email to terra at cjsr.com or tweet at Terra Informa. A big thank you to our contributors this week, Jeremy Maho, Andrew Weeb, and Hannah Cunningham. We've been your hosts, Kezia Diaz and Tiana Barbara Cross. We look forward to catching you next week right here on Terra Informa.